Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods in practice. Amy Shallett is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a specialist on adolescent sexuality and culture in comparative perspective. Amy is the author of Not Under My Roof, Parents, Teens, and the Culture of Sex. She has written opinion pieces for the New York Times and the Washington Post, and her research has been featured in such online publications as Time and Salon. Amy joins us to discuss in-depth interviews. So we're here to talk about in-depth interviewing. If you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of the technique before, how would you describe it? Well, I would say that in-depth interviewing is having a conversation with the people you're interviewing where you're really trying to get at uh, not just what they do or what they think in a superficial way, but what are their underlying assumptions uh, or belief systems? What are some of the kind of social processes that they uh, are part of uh, that really take some deeper levels of reflection? And so, while on the one hand it's kind of informal, like a conversation that you'd have with a friend, it's different because you do a lot more listening than you typically do mm-hmm. with a friend. But it's the same in that if you're being a good friend, you really lean in in order to hear what they're saying. And you have to do that in a good in-depth interview. We'll use your recent research on adolescent sexuality as a way to understand how this method works. What were your central research questions for this project? I would say my central research questions were how is adolescent sexuality understood and managed differently or possibly the same in two different countries among a similar population, which is the U.S. and the Netherlands, the, and the similar population being the white middle class. That was sort of the first level research question, but the second level research question was how are ideas um, and ways of dealing with uh, teen sexuality influenced by conceptions of the individual and what it means to be a person and get along with other people. Um, And that those ideas about individualism don't just shape how teen sexuality is managed in the family, but they shape how governments work and policy. That was my broadest research question. How did you choose the two countries that you would focus on? Well, there's two kinds of answers to that question. (laughs) It's no secret that many of us uh, study either what we know best or something Mm -hmm. we've lived through or some place that we have connections, and that was true for me too. So I I am of American, you know, I was born in the U.S., but I grew up in the Netherlands. So I was from a very early age confronted with cultural differences. Um, and I had connections, I speak both the languages, but kind of at a a more mythological level, the countries are interesting because they have a lot of similarities, even though they're, you know, also obviously different. One is small, one is big, but they're both Western. They're um, both, uh, you know, relatively wealthy countries with a similar conception of adolescence and family life. Uh, they both went through the sexual revolution. So you'd expect a fair amount of similarity, mm-hmm. and yet there's this huge difference. And the difference is not just in how teen sexuality is managed in the family, but also in terms of pregnancy rates being very high in the U.S. and very low in Holland. Mm-hmm. 
When you were first designing the study, what came first, the topic or an interest in the idea or the methodological approach? Uh, oh, interest in the, the topic. As, okay. as I'm sure uh, you're, you know, you teach as students, uh, the interest comes first and then you slowly figure out that in fact, well, I, I know the moment when uh, it was a decision of do I do ethnography versus in-depth interviewing and my advisor at that time, and I was an undergraduate at that time when mm -hmm. I first did my in-depth interview, said, you know, do you basically want to study schools and or which is one mm -hmm. place I consider doing interviews and and then you have to observe like how these schools regulate regulate teens or do you really are you really interested in the ideas the cultural assumptions mm -hmm. concepts and for that you're really going to have to do interviews so you mentioned ethnography did you ever consider drawing and other methodological approaches during the research process Oh, I did consider it, and in some ways I did also do it. I mean, I think that any in-depth interview study does require additional data. Uh, most studies should do that, not everyone does. So I use a lot of survey I, material in order to situate my samples. I, I use um, uh, secondary data to make arguments about what in sociology you know we call micro-sociological interactions with macro-structures. I have to you know, draw on state policies, for instance. And although I didn't do formal ethnographies, I did grow up in these two countries, and I do mm -hmm. use that knowledge. It's, you know, Gertz calls it um, first-order interpretations. It's if you are part of a culture, you have access to that. So we were also wondering about your collection of data. Yes. Um, what was your sampling strategy? Or who did you de how did you decide who you were going to interview when you were out in the field in the, in the two different countries? Well, if you're, if you're comparing across country and you really want to highlight a difference between the two countries, it's very important that you're not comparing apples and oranges. So you have to try to make the samples within each country be as similar as possible. But you also can't have them be, they still have to be typical. They can't be representative because it's not a random sample, but they have to be typical of the country. So I looked only at the middle class and only at white people and only at not very religious people in order to have them be as similar as possible. But then in order to have them be as typical as possible, I went for what I call the moderate middle. I went for locations within the country where you wouldn't expect. I didn't go to New York, I didn't go to Amsterdam, but I also didn't go to Texas or, you know, um, the, the Dutch equivalent of Texas. I tried to keep it relatively relatively typical mm -hmm. if such a thing exists. Did you face any unexpected challenges or barriers when you were collecting your data or setting up your interviews? Yes. I would say the topic, teen sexuality, is... Well, I would say I found barriers. I wouldn't say that they were so unexpected. Mm -hmm. So the, the finding is that teen sexuality is dramatized, much more conflictual in the U.S. It's more normalized in the Netherlands. Not just that it is considered normal, but there's a lot of work to create this sense of it is normal in the Netherlands. So it wouldn't be surprising that Dutch schools gave me much more easy access uh, than American schools. It was very hard to get access to schools. In fact, I got access to one of the main, most important schools in the U.S. by total accident. Someone on the school board 
saw the word Dutch and had Dutch heritage <laughs> and he was like Dutch, you know, and yeah. I and I didn't say that it was about teen sexuality per se. I said it's about what it means to grow up and it deals with all these different topics. So I deflected the potential controversy. but That's how I got in. So that was one, you know, so te studying teens is always hard. And then I would say the second challenge was that within the U.S., teen sexuality is so much more stigmatized for girls that actually doing an in-depth interview with girls is hard because for them sometimes even being asked a question about their sexuality feels like you're suggesting that mm -hmm. they're sexual which means that yeah. they're maybe bad and I would add one more thing which, mm -hmm. which, which I think is really fun so when I started my research, I had no idea just how radical it was to ask American parents whether they would let their 16-year-olds sleep over together with a boyfriend or a girlfriend in their room. And it's a good thing, too, because I just went in and asked that question. And I'm not sure I would sit down and do that research again yeah. today, because I know that people are like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, but I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. So it was in some ways the opposite. It wasn't an unexpected barrier. It was like a barrier I didn't even realize that existed. And so therefore I didn't allow it to stop me from asking it. <laughs> yeah. So when you would ask that questions and, and people would be surprised or even offended, would that cause a problem as you continued with the interview or did they still seem happy to continue to carry on the conversation? Did that ever end the interview? That did not end the interview. There were one or two cases in which I did not ask the question because I was far, far enough along in my research and they had said things like if she came home pregnant I, she would no longer be my daughter you know if that had mm -hmm. if people had said something like that prior to the, the moment that I got to, I wouldn't ask that question but I I had to do a lot of yeah you have to so in-depth interviewing does require um, it requires being okay about going to the edge taking people to an edge of comfort, but then you also have to not just like drop a bomb on them. So mm -hmm. if they said something like, no way, or he'd be dead meat, or he shouldn't even come home and ask that, I would then have to sort of transition into, well, not just like, I would have to say something like, well, is there a circumstance under which you could imagine that? You know, and then like, well, maybe if they were engaged. Mm -hmm. So then you take them, back to their comfort zone, you know? Or you say, well, could you tell me wh why that would feel so wrong? You know, you have to stay mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you have to make them feel that even though they've just had like an explosion, <laughs> you know, emotionally, that you're with them, that, that you're willing to listen to that. So after you conducted the interviews, um, what did you do or how did you analyze the data? Well, this is where I think a project as an undergraduate is a lot more manageable because an undergraduate is rarely going to do more. Like when I was an undergraduate, I did 30 interviews, which is a lot more than most undergraduates would do. Yeah. I think, you know, your typical undergraduate thesis project would not be more than 20. And I think if you're if you then code, uh, you can still print out all the interviews and you can take colors and you can, uh, you know, mark the colors for the different themes or the different topics and then you can go back, you can take notes and it can be, I mean, the, the coding process, which is what we call the next stage, can be by hand, which is much easier. And the key thing is that you sort of do two things. You 
you group the transcripts, I mean you type them out, and you group the t transcripts by topic area, and that allows you to see what, what the themes are, and then you also look for themes. So an example of that was one of the things I came about was one theme that came up in the U.S. context was this concept of raging hormones. So many parents use the idea, either the literal words of raging hormones or the idea behind it, which is that teenage sex is this, this sort of explosive thing that parents yeah. have to put a damper on. And in fact, my first article was called Raging Hormones Regulated Love. How many interviews did you end up conducting? You're saying as an undergrad you did 30, but for the Well, and for my book I had 130 that I analyzed. I actually wow. did way more because in the book I ended up only focusing on the middle class, but initially I had also included working class people. Mm -hmm. So 130 is a lot. And for that, I had to use an ele um, electronic, a computer-assisted uh, oh, okay. software. So I used NVivo. So when students first take research methods, they spend a lot of time talking about the ideas of generalizability and validity. How did these ideas factor into your project? So those ideas, generalizability and validity, come directly from survey, or th not those ideas, but those words, uh, come directly from survey design. And when you do in-depth interviewing at least of the kind I do some people believe that you can just throw out concerns of generalizability and validity out the door and you're actually going along a completely different track I am probably a bit more on the sciency side of things which is in in-depth interviewing because you're talking about dozens of people or at most hundreds of people you're never talking about thousands of people you can't fully generalize but you ask questions of typicality. Again, like I said, is it apples and oranges? No, you need to be talking about apples and apples. Um, so you stick to some of those questions. And validity, the question of whether or not the information that you're getting is what you think you're getting. That, actually, one could argue you are better able to do in in-depth interviewing because you can back, go back and you can say, is this what you mean? Am I understanding you correctly? That's actually one of the strengths of what in-depth interviewing is. It, it gets at, at validity. Would you be willing to share one of your core findings or sociological contributions from the project? Sure. Well, I mean, I think one of the baseline findings w was in the title of my book, Not Under My Roof, Parents, Teens, and the Culture of Sex, that it's common for Dutch parents to permit teens to spend the night with their serious girlfriends and boyfriends starting at around age 15, 16, 17. And in the U.S. that's really uncommon, even among progressive liberal um, uh, parents. That is one of the findings um, that still surprises people, even though, even though in, in some ways it, it shouldn't. But I would say that the sociological contribution was twofold. One, to argue that what appears to be a very liberal system in the Netherlands is in fact a deeper form of control, that the parents, by bringing these girlfriends and boyfriends into the home, can talk about contraception, can prevent teen pregnancy, they can vet the girlfriends and boyfriends, they stay connected, whereas the American teens are sneaking around and doing their own thing, largely away from adult supervision. And I would say the second contribution is to show that these, these forms of regulation that happen in the family are very parallel to the kinds of uh, regulations that happen at a state level, at a mm -hmm. governmental level. 
okay. in, in the larger macro scheme of things. When you were conducting your research and also writing up the project, uh, who was the audience that you envisioned and how did that shape uh, what you were doing? That's a great question because I always, and I think I'm a little different perhaps from, from many academics in that way, I always came into this project feeling that I wanted to, to have conversations with my colleagues, but that I ultimately wanted the research to be available for people who are raising young people, as well as people um, dealing with issues of sexuality and, and youth in the political realm. And so one way it shaped the research itself was that at the time that I started doing the research, whenever people would talk about teen sexuality, they would often think of sort of welfare queens and, you know, out of wedlock birth. And there was a lot of sort of implicit assumption that you're talking about minorities and as if only they have teen sex, you know. And I really purposely wanted to pull away towards the what we might call dominant population of the white middle class. Um, so that shaped, that I was shaped somewhat by that. But I think that uh, my interest in, in talking to this broader public shaped the way I wrote the book. And, mm -hmm. and that in-depth interviewing allows you to speak to broader audiences because it gives you great stories to mm -hmm. tell. And so I start every chapter almost in the book with a story. That's a way to like get journalists to read it, to, to yeah. hold on to the interest of a broader public. That ties in well with our next question. Uh, reflecting back on the project, what do you think the main advantages or selling points are for this methodological approach? Yeah, I would say certainly uh, the main advantages are, are your the capacity to tell a good story. To tell a good story and to, and I would say, especially when you're doing cross-national research, People are often much more, they're, they're likely to say, oh, that's not so different, or oh, you know, people don't tend to really understand culture until they feel it, uh, until they experience it. And if you take them into the world of uh, parents elsewhere, they can see both similarities and the differences, and a good story will help you do that. Now, if I may interject, there are also some disadvantages, which mm -hmm. I think are worth mentioning, yeah, that'd be great. which is that you have to make these choices about who am I going to focus on. And then there's a whole groups of people whose stories you're not telling. So I can't tell you anything about the black middle class. Yeah. I can't tell you very much about the American working class. And, and so there's a limit to whose story you tell. Mm -hmm. You can tell a very good story, but you can't tell everybody's story. Mm -hmm. If you could go back in time, is there something that you would change related to the methods that you used or how you employed them? Well, I, there's things I could think of that I would change, but I'm not sure that if they had if they are methodological. Mm -hmm. So I'm just having to think for a moment about. I don't want to say I did everything right, but I mean I you know I did get a lot of trial runs. I did, mm -hmm. I, you know I I did as I mentioned earlier. I started this project as an undergraduate. At that time, I interviewed people across class, and then in my graduate program, I refined it. So. Mm -hmm. You know, I got a lot of second chances yeah. to, to do it. I mean, there's things I would change, but they're not methodological. Okay. So when you went on to grad school, you knew specifically that you were going to continue I, with the project? I entertained other possibilities, but I knew soon. I, honestly, I went to graduate school to write the book. Mm -hmm. I, knew, I knew that this was something that I had gotten feedback enough to my undergraduate thesis that, that I thought, oh, wow, there are people who really want to read this. I don't have enough information I don't have maybe the 
the knowledge that I need because that's the truth is that what makes an in-depth interview really work as a piece of sociology is not that it's a story because a journalist can tell a story but it's the sociology that helps you interpret the story and connect it to the larger structures and that is what graduate school helped me do thank you for joining us i'm happy to do it on behalf of me sarah Logison, and my co-producer kyle green thank you so much for listening and remember please give methods a chance Thank you.